guys, I'm Ray Bella, and this is Words for Granted, a podcast that looks at how words change over time. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible, the world's leading provider of expertly performed audiobooks. Audible has over 180,000 titles that you can listen to anytime, anywhere. We all have tons of books that we'd love to read, but most of us just don't have the time to sit down and read them. Audible makes this dilemma a little bit easier. You can listen to Audible in the car, at the gym, online at the grocery store, basically anywhere. If you sign up at audibletrial.com slash wordsforgranted, you'll get one month free. And not only that, but you'll also be supporting the show. Everybody wins. You can find a link to the trial right in the show notes for today's episode, and I hope you sign up today. I'd like to remind you that the first Patreon episode of the show has been released. It's a continuation of last week's episode on the word two. Here's a sample of what contributors to the show are listening to. If we look at the word for two among all the Indo-European languages, these words all sound a lot like dwarf. That root word passed into Latin as duo, which gave us the Italian due, Spanish dos, and French de. It passed into Greek as duo as well. It passed into Persian as do, into Sanskrit as dvau, into Bengali as dui, into Lithuanian as du, into Welsh as die, and the list goes on and on. I think you can see the trend here. However, the word two begins with a T sound, not a D sound. English is not the only Indo-European language that contains this anomaly. German, Dutch, Swedish, and Danish, for example, all contain words for two that start with T. These words are zwei, twee, to, and two, respectively. What makes these words for two different from their other Indo-European cognates? For as little as $1 a month, you can gain access to this patrons-only episode and other exclusive content in the future. Just head over to patreon.com wordsforgranted to find out how you can support the show. Alright, let's get on to today's episode. In 2014, Merriam-Webster named culture the word of the year. According to their editors, the word was chosen because it experienced the greatest increase of searches on their website. If you ask me, the implication of this is either A. People suddenly wanted to know exactly what culture means, or B. People suddenly became confused about what culture exactly means. Or perhaps it was a bit of both. Regardless, it indicates that culture isn't a straightforward word. It's actually many words disguised as one. According to a quick Google search, the most popular definition of culture is the arts and other manifestations of human intellectual achievements regarded collectively. Its synonyms, not according to me, but according to Google, include literature, painting, philosophy, and music. Google's next major definition of culture is the customs, arts, social institutions, and achievements of a particular people, nation, or social group. 
Let's take a moment to note some of the differences between this definition and the previous one. In addition to the arts, this definition incorporates customs and social institutions into the mix. It eliminates the intellectual aspect of human achievement, and the implications of this little adjustment are huge. It transforms things such as Burger King and the Kardashians into American culture, which, to be fair, both represent human achievements, but not exactly intellectual ones. Another major difference is that this definition links culture to particular groups of people, thus acknowledging the existence of different cultures. This may seem self-evident to us today, but as we'll see later on in the episode, the idea of multiple non-European cultures was a relatively late development of the word. Google includes words such as society, civilization, lifestyle, heritage, and habit as synonyms for this definition. Google's third definition of culture is the attitudes and behavioral characteristics of a particular social group. This definition is different from the previous two because it focuses on immaterial aspects of society. The last major definition of culture, according to Google, is its biological sense. In biology, a culture is the cultivation of bacteria, cells, etc. in an artificial medium containing nutrients. Surprisingly, this sense of the word is most in line with the word's original meaning. The roots of culture ultimately go back to colere, a Latin verb meaning to farm. Yes, that surprised me too, but more on that soon. The reason I'm defining these modern senses of the word now is because our task is not only to connect the dots of culture's past, but also to connect the dots of culture's present. The overall picture that's going to emerge is more like a Jackson Pollock painting than a pristine high-resolution image, but it nonetheless will give you some perspective on culture that you may not have had before. What you're about to see is that in order to really grasp the implications of a word as semantically complex and flexible as culture, you can't take the dogma of a textbook definition at face value. A word like culture needs analysis and scrutiny in order to be fully understood. One more thing before we start digging in. I'd like to acknowledge that today's analysis draws a lot from Raymond Williams's 1976 book, Keywords, A Vocabulary of Culture and Society. It's basically an opinionated etymological dictionary, so if you love this show, you will definitely love keywords. All right, let's start picking apart culture. Williams himself calls it one of the two or three most complicated words in the English language, and after putting this episode together... I couldn't agree more. Our story begins with its unassuming Latin root, colere. As I already said, colere meant to farm or to cultivate. Over time, it developed several secondary meanings, including to inhabit, to worship or honor, and to protect. Each of these secondary meanings is distinct in its own right, but if we consider them in the context of ancient Rome, we can see how they all might derive from a single verb meaning to farm. 
If you were able to farm in a particular region, then it would have been a desirable area to inhabit. The stability of ancient Roman society, and for that matter most ancient societies, depended on successful and abundant harvests. This life-or-death importance of seasonal harvests gave colere a sense of worship and honor. If you worshipped and honored the farmland that you inhabited, you probably would protect it too. The various senses of colere would go on to produce the noun forms colonia, cultus, and cultura. These words came into modern English as colony, cult, and culture, respectively, and each word ultimately corresponds to a particular sense of colere. Colony corresponds to inhabit, cult corresponds to worship, and culture corresponds to farm. While the etymologies of colony and cult speak for themselves, the etymology of culture raises an eyebrow. None of our modern senses of culture have anything to do with farming. The key word here is modern. Back in the 15th century, when the word first entered English, culture meant cultivated land, or the process of cultivating land. This definition was inherited verbatim from cultura, culture's direct Latin ancestor. Until as late as the 17th century, this agricultural sense of the word was still its primary sense. It's no coincidence that the original meaning of culture sounds a lot like the modern meaning of agriculture. Agriculture and culture are cognate, no surprise there, and we'll be talking more about the relationship between the two words later on. Also, I'd like to bring attention to my use of the word cultivate in the definition of culture. These words are cognate as well, but from the 15th through 17th centuries, their linguistic relationship went even deeper. The original meaning of cultivate was strictly to prepare the land for crops, so Culture and cultivate basically meant the same thing, except one was a verb and the other was a noun. All of this paints a pretty coherent picture of an early agricultural sense of the word culture. But how did the word go from its humble farming origins to one of the most overarching anthropological concepts known to humanity? The answer actually lies in the Latin writings of Cicero, so we have to go back in time again before we can move forward. Cicero was an ancient Roman politician renowned for his prose and oration. In the first century BC, he wrote the Tusculan Disputations, a popular work of Stoic philosophy. In it, he uses the phrase cultura animi. It's a metaphor, and translated into English, it means something like cultivation of the soul. This is not a Christian soul that Cicero is talking about, as the Christianization of Rome would not occur for another two and a half centuries. The soul for Cicero is a philosophical entity. At the time Cicero was writing, philosophy was often criticized as a useless pursuit. Cicero's reaction to this criticism was his idea of cultura animi. The genius of this metaphor is the juxtaposition of philosophy, something allegedly useless, with farming, something inherently essential. In the context of cultura animi, the mind is equivalent to soil. 
Like a farmer who plants seeds, nurtures his crops, and eventually reaps a bountiful harvest, Cicero is suggesting that human beings can perfect their souls if their minds have been nourished with all the right stuff. Cultura animi was a way of perfecting one's rationality and philosophical capacity. This is one of those Roman ideals borrowed from the Greeks. To simplify Cicero's idea even further, you can think of cultura animi simply as the process of acquiring knowledge. Cicero may have sown the seeds of culture nearly two millennia ago, yes, double entendre intended, but it's not until the 16th century that the words modern sense really begins to bloom. Here's why. As cultura passed from Latin into French and then into English, its primary agricultural sense remained intact. Here's something important to keep in mind. Cicero did not reinvent the word cultura itself. He merely used it as part of a metaphor to convey a particular idea. At the end of the day, cultura still meant cultura, or cultivated land. But how does any of this pertain to English? Well, 16th and 17th century intellectuals began reviving Cicero's notion of cultura animi. Thomas More, Francis Bacon, and Thomas Hobbes, to name a few, all use some form of the phrase culture of the mind. Based on the meaning, context, and wording of the phrase, this is a direct continuation of Cicero's cultura animi. For that reason, I'm going to refer to culture of the mind as Ciceronian. The emergence of the English phrase culture of the mind chronologically correlates with the semantic broadening of the word cultivate. Semantic broadening, by the way, is the technical term linguists use to describe when the meaning of a word becomes broader or more general. Whereas cultivate used to strictly mean to prepare the land for crops, it now was being used to mean to tend, to nurture, or to care for, generally speaking. This is significant because, up to this point, the agricultural meanings of cultivate and culture had been intertwined, but now they were beginning to diverge. The word culture will also undergo semantic broadening soon, but first, another key development in the history of the word needs to take place. The Ciceronian conception of culture needs to become a standalone noun. What do I mean by that? Like cultura animi, culture of the mind isn't exactly a word. It's a metaphorical phrase that depends on a prepositional phrase to convey its meaning. Of the mind is a necessary semantic component of the Ciceronian conception of culture. Don't forget that culture here still literally meant cultivated land, or the process of cultivating land. Another thing that makes the culture in culture of the mind different from our modern sense of the word is that it pertains to the internal growth of the individual. Over the next century, the emphasis of culture will move away from individual growth and toward societal growth. Soon after, it will lose the necessary semantic component of growth altogether. These two developments are the next crucial step on the word's path toward its modern senses. 
One of the first examples of culture as a noun of collective societal growth comes from John Milton's 1660 work, The Ready and Easy Way to Establish a Free Commonwealth. In it, Milton writes, quote, It will spread much more knowledge and civility, yes, religion, through all parts of the land, by communicating the natural heat of government and culture more distributively to all extreme parts, which now lie numb and neglected. End quote. In this passage, culture is still a noun describing a growth process and it's still a metaphor bound at the hip to a prepositional phrase, but it's different from culture of the mind because the spreading of knowledge and civility via the natural heat of government and culture is a process of social growth, not individual growth. The other distinguishing characteristic of Milton's usage is that it explicitly links culture to civility, which of course is a social institution. In this context, civility doesn't imply manners or politeness, but rather the virtues of civilization at large. This idea is taken to the next level by Samuel Prudendorf, a German contemporary of Milton. Whereas the Ciceronian view of culture held that philosophy was the natural perfection of mankind, Prudendorf rejected the narrowness of this claim and expanded it to, quote, all the ways in which human beings overcome their original barbarism and through artifice become fully human, end quote. Based on what Prudendorf says here, culture was no longer a noun of process. It was the culmination of a process that men of the Enlightenment defined as the self-development of humanity. Except humanity for these men didn't mean all of humanity. It meant Europe. The European ethos at the time held that European culture was, in pretty much every way, superior to non-European cultures. But to put it in those terms is anachronistic, because the only idea of culture was European culture. Culture itself was a uniquely European phenomenon. By the late 18th century, this Eurocentric conception of culture was coming under attack. In his unfinished work, Ideas on the Philosophy of the History of Mankind, the German writer Johann Gottfried Herder criticized the widely held assumption that all of history has been working toward the zenith of European cultural dominance. He dismissed the word culture as indeterminate and deceitful. His views are best summarized in the following excerpt from Ideas on the Philosophy of the History of Mankind. Quote, Men of all the quarters of the globe who have perished over the ages, you have not lived solely to manure the earth with your ashes so that at the end of time your posterity should be made happy by European culture. The very thought of a superior European culture is a blatant insult to the majesty of nature. End quote. In this bold address to non-European peoples from all over the world, Herder innovated the idea of culture in the plural. He applied his idea of plural cultures not only to different nations and different time periods, but also to cultures within cultures. In contrast to the Eurocentric conception of culture from Herder's day, the idea of cultures within cultures is commonplace in today's world. 
We distinguish cultures within cultures all the time with phrases such as high culture, low culture, pop culture, and so on. This linguistic trend really came into the mainstream following the emergence of terms such as counterculture and subculture in the 1960s. Taking their cue from Herder, thinkers of the Romantic period redefined culture as the opposite of civilization. If civilization was a long line of inherited customs and rules in order to promote discipline and homogeneity, then culture was an individualized way of realizing one's own potential for the sake of it. The re-emphasis of the individual in this notion of culture is noteworthy because it's a throwback to the Ciceronian implications of culture of the mind. The idea of this civilization versus culture dichotomy that the Romantics are rebelling against sounds a little outdated to us because when we talk about the ways of life of different nations today, we tend to use the word culture. The word civilization comes with either an antiquated air of superiority or the implication of antiquity, period. If I said the phrase Roman civilization, you would automatically know that I was talking about the ancient Roman Empire, not the ways of life in the capital city of Italy in 2017. As we move into the 19th century, though it's a bit of a non sequitur, I should mention that this is the point in history at which the biological sense of culture, as in germ culture or bacteria culture, came into usage. This development of the word doesn't have too much to do with our main story, but it's worth noting that it is the only modern sense of the word culture that still refers to the process of physical growth. As I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, the biological sense of culture means the cultivation of bacteria, cells, etc. in an artificial medium. I should also mention that at this point, the farming sense of culture had fallen so out of usage that the conspicuously similar word agriculture had taken its place. Actually, agriculture was not a new word. It derives from the Latin compound agricultura, which means cultivated field, and it's been a part of the English lexicon for as long as culture itself. It was simply a more specialized form of the word culture, and therefore it was not as commonly used. However, as the meaning of culture began to move away from farming, the use of the word agriculture increased. Eventually, it just became a catch-all term for the science or process of farming. Today, the definition of agriculture has expanded to include the rearing of animals for food, wool, and other products. Okay, let's get back to our main narrative and pick things up in the early 20th century. Here, we begin to see the distinct association of culture with the arts. It's difficult to trace the precise emergence of this sense of the word since many prior senses included the arts in some roundabout way as well. The difference in this 20th century notion of the word is that the arts are not just one aspect of culture, but rather they are culture. This, of course, is still one of the main senses of the word today. According to the Google search engine, it's apparently the most popular definition. I'm not so sure I agree with that, but I'm not going to waste time and energy arguing against it. 
Though it seems connotatively neutral, there originally was hostility against this sense of culture as the arts. Culture as the arts was perceived as a mark of elitism, a symbol of superior knowledge inaccessible to the common man. This maybe had something to do with a growing divide between high art and popular art, and, by extension, who was consuming them. This negative attitude produced the derogatory expression, culture vulture. It's an expression that's pretty outdated today, but it means someone with an excessive and pretentious interest in the arts. But by the 1960s, this negative view of the word, for the most part, had diminished. Culture had gained traction as an academic term in the realms of sociology, anthropology, and archaeology, so it's possible that the growing awareness of cultural studies redefined the overall connotation of culture in a positive light. You could argue that culture in the latter half of the 20th century experienced yet another secular Ciceronian revival. Culture was seen as a means of self-expression and self-discovery. As the counterculture movement of the 1960s demonstrated, if you didn't like the culture around you, you could just create your own culture. The 80s and 90s saw the emergence of the term multiculturalism, which was seen as a sign of social progress. But what about today? Has the word culture undergone change in the last 10 years? Let's return to the Google definitions of culture that we discussed at the start of this episode. They are, one, the arts and other manifestations of human intellectual achievements regarded collectively. Two, the customs, arts, social institutions, and achievements of a particular nation, people, or other social group. And three, the attitudes and behavioral characteristics of a particular social group. But is that really it? Are these three definitions the extent of what culture means to us today? I don't think so. As we've seen, the precise meaning of culture cannot be defined by just a definition. So in conclusion to the linguistic odyssey that we've just embarked upon, I'd like to take a look at some of the word's recent developments. In 2014, Joshua Rothman wrote an article for The New Yorker titled The Meaning of Culture, in which he discusses some newly emerging modern sentiments toward the word. In short, he believes that our idea of culture is growing darker and more skeptical. Instead of paraphrasing what he himself already says so clearly, I'm just going to read an extended passage from his article. Quote, Today, Culture has a furtive, shady, ridiculous aspect. Often when we attach the word culture to something, it's to suggest that it has a pervasive, pernicious influence, as in celebrity culture or rape culture. At other times, culture is used in an aspirational way that's obviously counterfactual. Institutions that drone on about their culture of transparency or culture of accountability often have neither. On all sides, culture is used in a trivializing way. There's no real culture in coffee culture. But at the same time, it's hard to imagine applying the word culture to even the most bona fide cultural institutions. We don't say that the Museum of Modern Art fosters art culture because to describe art as culture is subtly to denigrate it. 
1954, when the magazine Film Culture was founded, its name made movie lovers sound glamorous. Today, it sounds vaguely condescending. End quote. You can take this single excerpt and use it as a springboard for another 30-minute podcast, but I think the most important takeaway is that culture is growing into a new, ironic, and derisive skin. The dissonance of a term like rape culture specifically deprives the word culture of the positive aspects of self-expression and self-growth usually associated with it, and instead emphasizes the customs of misogyny and male privilege and the institutions that perpetuate it. Here, the word culture is used as a criticism of itself. The impulse to redefine the meaning of culture is nothing new. It has been a word of both conformity and rebellion, inclusion and exclusion. From its early days as an agricultural term to its divided connotations today, its precise meaning has always and will always be in flux. As long as culture itself continues to change, the word culture will change with it. Okay, that's it for this one, guys. I've run quite a bit over time, but I hope you enjoyed it nonetheless. Maybe you enjoyed it more. If you guys like the longer format episodes as opposed to the regular 15 to 17 minute long episodes, let me know at wordsforgranted at gmail.com and I'll put more of these out in the future. They obviously take more time to research, but I ultimately want to produce the show that you, the listeners, most enjoy. Don't forget to follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. My Twitter name is just at Words for Granted. If you love the show, please spread the word and leave a review on iTunes. It seems petty, but iTunes reviews are super helpful for getting the show into more people's hands. All right. See you next time here at Words for Granted. Words for Granted.